I hope this doesn't seem like hyperbole, but I believe that the future of our democracy actually rides on the ability for journalism yeah. to be able to have a model that succeeds. But if you layer enough slices of Swiss cheese on top of one another, you start to get a lot of coverage. So the future is a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. I want to advertise dog food, right? Like. Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. This is a spotlight episode in which I have a discussion with the underwriting sponsor of The Rebooting. The last five episodes in this mini season were brought to you by Audigen. And I have known Jake Abraham, Audigen's president, from my former job for many years. And I've enjoyed working with them to understand how Audigen helps publishers make their data a competitive advantage. I think too often the use of data in publishing and advertising is thought in very binary terms. First party data is good. Third party data is bad. Contextual is good. Audience targeting is bad. You know, the truth, publishing is like any other industry. It's going to use more data, not less than five years time. But how it uses that data is changing and it's changing every day. Just look at the phase out of the third party cookie and what a mess that has been. And also the various regulations that are coming into effect. I don't even think we know all of them just yet. Jake helps sort out what is happening, what matters, and why publishers can end up benefiting from this period of flux. To learn more, visit audigent.com. That is A-U-D-I-G-E-N-T.com. Hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm just going to go right into it. Are you ready, Jake? I think as ready as we'll be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's fine. I like it. Yeah. When we talk Philly sports, Dave, just tell us. Yeah. I don't know. James Harden. I'm still trying to get my arms around that idea. I guess. I don't know at this point. <laughs> Anything's better than Tobias. All right, Jake, welcome to the program. Right, it's so good to be here. It's great to finally be seeing you and hearing you after uh, being a third-party listener for so long. Okay, well, third-party, second-party, zero-party, we're going to get into the data today. So we were talking, actually, before we started recording this. My general belief when it comes to the use of data in any field in our economy or society is that we're going to be using more data in five years than we are now. I think that's a good bet. And yet, I feel like in the publishing and advertising world, for a bunch of different reasons, we're in this period where people are saying, oh, they're going to take away all the data because of third-party cookie and stuff like this. And I just think the rules are changing slightly. But give me the lay of the land about where we are when it comes to the application of data in the publishing and advertising ecosystem. Sure. Big question. I've seen data be considered like an asset or an asset class. I mean, I think that for publishers um, of all kinds, they create intellectual property, whether that's visual or audio or written. Those are all incredibly important intellectual properties to own. And then there's audience. And audience used to be pretty transitory or you had a very static audience. But nonetheless, the ability to apply data now means that audience can be an asset as well. And I think that the platforms have understood that incredibly well. And whether they're the walled gardens or other large assets, they've understood the value of audience for a long time and they've wanted to really hold tight to that ownership. And so I think there's a new world out there that has let audience move beyond just those walls. And so they're 
becomes the big question of who gets to own those assets and uh, how, what is the liquidity around that asset and, and how do we use it moving forward in a way that is both uh, privacy-centric and done in ways that users know about and is also good for commerce. Okay, so with that as a backdrop, and and just to go further back, like what mistakes do you think have been made in this industry that have allowed the smart use of data to, at least in theory, personalize advertising to become widely construed? And I see this now everywhere. I have to run the data myself, but I believe surveillance advertising, if I do the Google Trends, is going to be going up. Right, like people are using surveillance advertising. They're not using personalized advertising as much. The only people using personalized advertising work in the industry. I feel like. Well, certainly, it would seem that what is classically considered retargeting yeah. has been one of the larger offenders, probably both on the industry side as well as on the consumer side. That idea that digital advertising is basically, I go to a digital store or I consume a certain type of piece of content, and then I end up seeing display advertising for the very thing which I was looking at uh, across the entire ecosystem. That, I think, has done a lot of harm because to many consumers, they see that as I think what you define as surveillance. You know what's interesting because you you brought that up, and I don't know if we've talked about this previously, but I can remember just in covering this industry for for a long time. It used to be twenty years ago, like if you know my parents would ask me, they'd be like, "Okay, so why do I why do I get all the pop up ads?" I'm like, "Oh, I've been writing about online advertising," and then immediately normal people just asked about the pop up ads, and now normal people ask about the retargeting ads. It's like, why am I being followed around by these shoes that I already bought? And I think what's interesting about that to me, in many ways, I feel like the industry has done itself a disservice because it's it's done things because they're tech, technically possible, but that there hasn't been enough thought placed on how people will perceive that. Because a lot of the people in the industry were a little bit flat-footed by a lot of these privacy concerns, thinking they were just whipped up by activists who did whip up a lot of hysteria around this. It's hard to find a victim. You're like, who gets victimized by cookies with no PII? There are victims all around, to be totally honest. I <laughs> think there? they just maybe are un 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 unknowing victims. Well, look, I think publishers are victims often. I mean, their margins are squeezed harder than ever before. They're creating content. I mean, I got into this business because I was a film and television producer for 20 years, and I've always been about protecting the content creators. And I think it's harder and harder to be a creator. And as the technology evolves and there's more and more middlemen, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that a publisher might be considered a victim. But I think it's very very, very hard in this ecosystem to understand uh, the technology and understand how those middlemen might be using the data and taking a VIG on, on the transaction. And some of them are, are providing super important, great service. I think we do that. But there's plenty of others that, in a pretty unregulated industry, have found a way to insert themselves in, in arbitrage. And while that may not be illegal, it certainly doesn't provide a lot of uh, value. And that's what people have commonly referred to as the ad tech tax or, or whatever. Basically, that the idea that I don't know if you might remember those commercials like how a bill becomes a law, like I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, yeah, Schoolhouse Rock. Brian, don't long, think long, I'm too journey. young for Schoolhouse Rock. I just try to flatter you. 
But I've always wanted to do is like, I'm just a dollar on Madison Avenue. And then it makes its way down Madison Avenue and everyone takes a chunk out of it as it moves its way to the publisher. And that's definitely been real. And I feel like a lot of that has stemmed from the pendulum always swings too far. I feel like maybe it's in most fields, but particularly in this field. But it's swung so far to individualize one-to-one marketing and the promises that dog owners would only see dog food ads, not cat food ads and stuff like this. And it, it ended up devaluing context to some degree. And of course, the answer is both, right? Of course, the answer is both. Yeah, absolutely. When you use that dollar, I'm reminded of something I think I still see all the time, the meme around how much of an advertising dollar goes back to the publisher when it's three pennies. I I think that's a somewhat misguided look. It's the same thing as saying, well, how much of a cup of coffee goes back to the producer? There's a lot of people in the chain that provide value between the guy that puts the plant in the ground and the barista who's actually grinding your cappuccino. These are not the same thing. So there's plenty of value in the chain to go around. The question becomes, how do we ensure that those that are actually in there with their handout are providing value back to the publisher and hopefully to the advertiser and consumer as well? That kind of statistic is what we call in journalism, too good to check. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's not start today. Because it tells a good story and people like stories uh, at the end of the day. But it's been undeniable that uh, as data has played a, a, a larger role in advertising, it has correlation is not causation, but it has definitely correlated with publishing business getting a lot harder. There's no doubt. And things are technologically potentially complex. And third-party cookies have not made that any easier. Third-party cookies were a hack or, or a crutch for the buy side of the industry that publishers glommed onto out of necessity. And, and here we are with what we have today. I came into the business as the third-party cookie was starting to have you know, people looking at it as what comes next. And so Audigent was an amazing place to come and start really thinking about some of those issues uh, about what comes next and how do content creators hold on to uh, a position or regain a position in the marketplace when uh, there's an opportunity, when there's such a tectonic change under underway. Yeah. So explain where Audigent sees the cookie-less future. What does that look like? Because I think we'll talk about how there's a lot up in the air right now. I mean, every day it's like Flock is dead. People have just learned what Flock stood for. And now all of a sudden it's gone or going away. And there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I can remember a couple of years ago, I, I had some some art made for a story of the cookie being crucified. And some people told me we couldn't run it because it might be offensive. Hey, religion has never shied away from advertising. I'm like, well, that's what they're doing <laughs> to the cookie. It's a little provocative. Who's going to complain? What is the mission? for Autogen when it comes to helping the industry move to this cookie-less future? Big question. Ultimately, what Autogen sees as a whole is the need to create liquidity meaning like the ability to transact. And I think that we want to do that in a way where all players can play in the space. So that's publishers and advertisers and platforms. I think one of the things that's been hard to date is that there are certain giant platforms that have really dominated. We know that 79% of all non-search advertising goes to three different platforms. And so when we look at what's next, we want to create a scenario where we can have liquidity around data, meaning the ability to use it in the ecosystem, uh, I would say democratically, meaning that whether it's a publisher or an advertiser, we understand uh, what it is and who it is in a way that we've all agree is central to the privacy of the consumer. 
and consumers need to be able to continue to opt in. And we'll see how legislation and regulation all play out. We want to be in a place where regardless of how all of that happens, we're able to continue to provide the types of tools that publishers need and the types of ways that advertisers need to buy. And we should be able to come together yeah. and do that. So publishers, uh, mostly, they, they talk about their first-party data like their children. Like It's like they're the most beautiful, perfect things in the world. It seems like the reality is individual publishers themselves, most of them are not going to have enough data and a deep enough data sets to do the kind of targeting or personalization, if you want to, that giant platforms do. That is why most of the ad money has gone to Google and Facebook and Amazon, right? Absolutely. And I think that what we say to publishers all the time is that that next publisher isn't your enemy. That next publisher is your partner <laughs> in this larger ecosystem. And I think that a number of publishers do see that. We operate as a cooperative, meaning that a lot of publishers can collaborate on data in order to achieve scale. And certainly with the kind of scale that we have, we see over 2 billion devices, we have the ability to certainly play in the scale game as well. So certainly as a niche player, an individual advertiser may not have massive scale, but that doesn't mean that they don't have partnerships and tool sets to be able to still deliver the way they need to satisfy advertisers. So how do you see it evolving? Because I feel like there a lot of times context is put in opposition to audience level data, right? It almost seems like context is the alternative to, to targeting people based on their individual interests. It would seem like most things, the answer is both. The answer is somewhere in between. Like you use both, right? I mean, it's funny you mentioned that, Brian, because it seems logical, and yet I don't see much of that discussion taking place today. And that's probably because there are particular businesses within trend. <laughs> if they're not selling that, then <laughs> they're not going to talk about it. <laughs> So yeah, we see contextual, been around forever, and because it's certainly privacy compliant, potentially cookie list, depending on how you're operating, um, and the IAB has built a whole framework around it that's very simple, like contextual is back, <laughs> and, and it has plenty of use cases, and they're very broad. They're probably also going to be very commoditized. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have what most of us call addressable. Yeah. Addressable is very interesting too, whether that's a logged in user or s some other way that we can one-to-one -one identify a particular, there's addressable and there's certain identity platforms and demand side platforms that have specific answers around addressable. And, and those are good too. Most people consider those to be relatively small swaths of the future because there's not that much of an addressable audience. It will be very premium and we want to ensure that publishers can uh, play in that space too. But to your point, we think there's a very sweet middle spot I tend to call it like contextual plus where the context of the page is critically important, but we want to know the content of a page and who's consuming it. But then we want to be able to deliver uh, both on behalf of the publisher and into the advertisers other important things about that audience. And that's what creates what we think the added value. And again, we think that we can do it in ways that will be future-proofed so that regardless of how platforms evolve, regardless of how privacy evolves, there will continue to be ways to deliver something more than just a contextual signal. Not taking anything away from contextual. It's an important part of what we do. But what more can we add so that we can provide more value and have our publishers getting a leg up uh, on the competition? Yeah. So give me an example of a publisher utilizing this 
Well, it's interesting. Dave Rosner did an amazing <laughs> job yesterday of helping us get part of our new story out around cookie-less identity. There's the context of the page, meaning there's the ability to say this is a page about uh, rock music or a page about hip-hop music. Potentially different audiences, there's a particular interest that we can, we can glean. But there's also potentially other demographic signals or historical page signals that allow us to say something more about who this might be in a probabilistic way. And we think that not only does that not reveal who this is, this is not one to one marketing where we're saying this is Brian, yeah. Brian went here, target him with this ad. It's still very much what's considered like a flock based, topic based, they call it now vectorized idea of an audience. So it's not that we're looking to use personally identifiable information, but we are looking to, to bring as much resolution as we can and do it yeah. in a way which has audience liquidity, meaning it has the ability to be understood in an ecosystem at large, not just only understood on one publisher's page, but understood in a larger context so that people can actually bid on those things, right? Because when there's demand, then we'll be able to get uh, more value. Yeah. So that sounds even more complicated then. Like, like I read this book by Michael Lewis, like about the the pandemic. I forget the name of it right now, but he talked about the mitigation strategy that we ended up with as being like the Swiss cheese strategy, and that none of it is one hundred percent. There's giant holes everywhere, but if you layer enough slices of Swiss cheese on top of one another, you start to get a lot of coverage. So the future when it comes to personalizing ads, targeting ads or something like this, is a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese to some degree. We're going to suck up a ton of data and it's going to tell us these exact things about this person. And then we're going to use the, th those signals to put the right ad in front of them. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. I think the jury's out on what will be the most useful, meaning like we don't always see to your point, content about dog food, dog food owner, dog owner. I, I want to advertise dog food, right? In any way, how CPG advertising works, right? There's much more complexity to it. Digital has enabled that complexity. In the days of newspaper advertising and radio advertising, it was different. It was contextual with certain types of audience components based on the channel. Now with digital and addressable, it's a, it is a much more complex ecosystem that has enabled advertisers to want more performance, more specificity, more targeting. And so that has been very advantageous to the platforms that have that massive footprint. We're trying to bring more tools to publishers so that they can play in that space and deliver more of that addressable or contextual or contextual plus solution without losing focus on their main mission, which is create amazing content so that they have the ability to drive audience there, right? Like we don't even talk about that part of it much anymore. We're so interested in how do we drive value from the audience? What gets the audience there in the first place? Let's get that publisher focused on that and then let companies like ours and others in the ecosystem actually help for some of these more complex topics, as you said. Yeah. So what are the steps a progressive publisher has to take in order to be able to fully utilize their data assets. First of all, every publisher claims to be a premium publisher. But secondly, I've never met a publisher that's like, no, we're not premium. Um, but Oh, I could show you a few, Brian. Oh, uh, really? Those are good. Self-awareness <laughs> is, is one of the greatest. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. You've never done a search and ended up on a less than premium page? What are the steps a publisher has to take in order to be able to utilize their data assets? Because again, every publisher says that, oh, we've got very powerful first-party data and all this stuff like this. but in truth, very few, I'm sure, do. 
Look, first-party data is just a term, right? So, like, different publishers have different types of first-party data. I think there's a bit of a misnomer that first-party data has to be, like, an email address. First-party data can be lots of things. To us, first-party data means it's collected by the content owner. So, the publisher is collecting their own audience's data. In the third-party space, it was different ways of collecting data where it was not the, the, the publisher who was necessarily collecting that data third-party context. So, first-party data can come from a number of different mechanisms. There's first-party cookies, there's other deterministic identifiers, as we know, mobile ad IDs and all sorts of things. So, it doesn't have to be... So, it doesn't have to be getting people logged in a logged-in state. That is a type of first-party right. data, but it does not, that is absolutely not a requirement. Okay. So, publishers that have been told that or believe, oh my gosh, I have to have a logged-in user, uh, I have to start creating sticky content that gets someone to log in, I'm, I love that idea. I, I want users to be engaged with the content. And there are some companies doing really amazing work in connection with publishers to help them around how are we going to move from this totally anonymized uh, fly-by-night audience to something that's more sticky that actually keeps an audience there and gets them to want to engage. I think that's fantastic, but it's not an absolute requirement to have that login. So there's absolutely first-party cookies. There's a lot of misnomer or, or there's a lot of misinformation because people hear cookie and say that's going away. The truth is third-party cookies are being deprecated by particular platforms, first-party cookies will continue to be an incredibly important part of the publisher's mm -hmm. toolkit. We work with first-party cookies on behalf of publishers all day long. So, there's many mechanisms. And, and I'm sorry, just like a first-party cookie is is simply like a drop by a publisher Correct. in a browser, and it, it can be used to keep people logged in. It can do lots of different things, per, true personalization of content. Yeah, if you've set some preferences in a particular yeah. publisher, here's how I want my login to look, or here's how I want the homepage to look when I arrive, it will remember that on your behalf. That's not going away. Yeah. And third-party cookies, on the other hand, they're kind of in the background. I think that even if nothing nefarious is going on, there's a poll here that insists on taking the credit card when you order like a cup of coffee and they'll, they'll take it away for four hours. And I don't really like the idea that you're just taking my credit card away for four hours somewhere else and I don't know what's going on. And generally, yep. Then you found a couple charges <laughs> on your statement, and you realized actually it probably I mean, was not an amazing idea to. And over you know, for context so is important, and since the context is Miami, I assume that people are running some kind of scam. But be that as it may, I don't think people like stuff going on in the background where they don't like under. They don't have. I think that was always the challenge of the way the ad tech system was architected is that there were a lot of companies doing a lot of valuable things by necessity. It happened in the background, whereas the relationship was always with the place where the, the the user went. Now, the downside of that is if we move to just prioritizing that, guess who's going to take an even larger part of the pie? They might just take the whole pie because they have a direct relationship with all the users. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's probably a longer conversation than we have for this podcast to talk about how well the platforms have positioned themselves in relation to consumer privacy. I mean, it's kind of been like a masterstroke of that positioning. I, I don't think that it actually leads toward the best consumer privacy moving forward. It's great that everyone signs up for the email and the shared workspace and the browser and mobile operating system and all of these things. It's a massive trove of first-party data that has been used to make companies like Google the top five largest companies ever created. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't work with publishers to build a 
infrastructure that allows them to compete in that space. And I think that search is one thing, but content creation is another. And if publishers lead into what they do best, it's competitive. As you know, Brian, you are a publisher. Mm -hmm. You were a publisher. You've been in that space. And it's about creating content and bringing audience to it. And, and that is easier said than done. There are legacy businesses that are still trading on a legacy name that need to refresh and update content. And then there's upstart players who have incredible content but haven't found that audience yet. They're all growing in new ways to take advantage of this ecosystem, which is content plus audience in an attempt to battle for ad dollars mm. with the biggest giants. So give me a scenario in which all of the changes going on right now, whether it's added together the deprecation of the third-party cookie, all the pressure on platforms, bills coming out against like surveillance advertising and whatnot. We, we don't know how the environment will change, but just to look in the, the crystal ball, is this a net positive for publishers creating quality content? Because I don't really know. Like, I think a lot of people just assume because context will be more important that publishers will benefit. But there's the other side that says that this is just going to depress the overall market. Well, I think that volume of data is certainly increasing. And as that grows, the chance for commoditization grows too. In fact, that took place in what I would call like version one of the internet. There was an incredible commoditization of relatively shallow insights. So the data wasn't valuable. It wasn't valuable for advertisers. It wasn't particularly monetizable for publishers. And it didn't really equate to, to, to much in the ecosystem. Now there's a, a next generation coming where with quality content, you have the opportunity to grow your engaged audience and, and engagement is important. So the more engaged your audience, the more willing they'll be, first of all, to follow your brand, your publishing brand, or even the influencers within your brand. Then you'll have the opportunity to both engage with them more on your platform. And if you're ad supported, that's important. If you're subscriber based, that's even more critical. And the ability to say, hey, we also use the relationship that we have with you to engage with you in other places. And that's the kind of audience liquidity or the ability to own that audience across the ecosystem. And the more that's understood, publishers, I think, couldn't be more transparent about it and say, hey, we are in an ad supported world and your support means a lot to us. We create this amazing content and we use the context of this audience in interesting ways across the ecosystem. That's very good for advertisers, and it's very good for publishers. It should be good for audiences, too. So I reject the idea that the content doesn't matter. The publishers, the super premium publishers we work with, Brian, they are all in the business of creating quality content. Some of it is UGC. You think about fandom, yeah. right? They create their own content, but they also rely on an incredible amount of community involvement in both content creation, moderation, and, and commenting. And it's a super engaged community around mostly UGC, but also professionally created content to be the largest you know, single independent entertainment publisher on the internet. They have super engaged fans. And whether it's a company like that or a company like Slick Deals, who's providing a service to help audiences find the best deals on the internet, different kind of content creation, right? It's not beautiful, slick imagery and beautifully written articles as much as it is deal finders and providing a forum for people to talk about 
discount commerce and where to find the best deals. And all of those things matter. Those are communities that have fans and absolutely rely on those publishers for information and community building. And so I think that those publishers have a big leg up on publishers that may not be working so hard on finding that audience mm -hmm. and finding who they're going to be engaged with for the next one, five, 10 yeah. years. Hey, how about on the advertiser side? Because I think there is a good case to be made. I'm a little cynical about it, but there's, I think there is a good case to be made that the status quo has really benefited small businesses and challenger brands, right? Because it's an open system and you just look at the DTC market. I mean, that stuff was built off of targeted advertising on Instagram and Facebook. And the question ends up becoming like, is this, because usually, look, as more regulations come and regulations can be placed by governments, and these days regulations can be placed by even more powerful entities known as platforms, um, they always benefit incumbents. I think in the history of regulation, incumbents usually come out ahead. They're like, oh yeah, sure. We got tons of lawyers. We got tons of compliance people. We have tons of resources. We can deal with this. But what's going to be the impact on the advertiser side as the use of data becomes, I would say, more expensive? More expensive, to go back to our model, addressable, yeah. expensive. If you think about like cost per acquisition models, mm -hmm. who's able to afford those, right? Pharma, sports gambling, auto, right? Big, big spenders. But we see challengers in that space too. We see the ability to be more targeted and you have to play some bets. You can't be Procter & Gamble. You can't be everywhere at every time. But part of what's interesting about our jobs is that on the publisher side, we're, we're gathering data. But then on the advertiser side, we're really working to help understand not just the simple context, but also we work with small businesses. Where do we place bets around where do we think there'll be conversion? Where do we think people will actually be interested? And obviously, Facebook has done an incredible job over the years at that. If you look now, Facebook's actually struggling more and more with that as the pricing models change and as the targeting changes on Facebook. And we have small businesses coming to us all the time saying, it was amazing. My first 10,000 customers yeah. on Facebook, yo, it was crazy. We did it for like a $2 CPA. And then suddenly we hit 10,000 users and hit a brick wall. That's not by accident. That's by design, right? You're inside a platform and you're totally subject to their math and their algorithms and their models. And, and that's great that they can get you hooked that way. But then what? And so I think in an open model, what we're banking on is the idea that we'll be able to use an open ecosystem and open data to help smaller businesses continue to find value. And they won't always be able to find it in addressable, where it might be more expensive. But if we're doing our jobs right on the buy side, we should absolutely be able to continue to drive value when a combination of context and targeting can provide what we couldn't provide before digital. Yeah, I think that platform model you described sounds a lot like it was pioneered by drug dealers a long time ago. Um. <laughs> I didn't know if this was the kind of podcast where I was allowed to say that. Similar. Sometimes you don't need... Which one's always free, right? You don't need to reinvent your go-to-market strategy when it's already been like honed over hundreds of years. <laughs> I, I know you say it in jest, but there is a lot of relevancy yeah. there. And, and it's unfortunate. There's many conversations I've had with advertisers over the years who say, like, why would we work with you guys? We're in Facebook yeah. and it just works. And it's always... 
I hate to say it, but like I told you, talk to me in six yeah. months, talk to me in a year, because it is it increasingly harder to continue to find success there. And I think if I'm not a Facebook expert, yeah. but I think if you talk to folks that are, they find that it is more and more of a struggle. And Facebook is absolutely losing market share among small and medium businesses because of uh, the experiences. Okay, Jake, take a stand. Is the third party cookie going away good or bad for publishers? No, on the one hand on the or on the other hand, good or bad? Beyond good. Beyond good. Okay. Why? Beyond good. Great. It 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 was a hack. I mean, the third party cookie was really built and optimized by the buy side. And so a lot of how data transacts today, which is probably more friendly to the advertiser, uh, is based on a third party cookie. So in a lot of ways we get a reset. And that reset gives the, the industry an opportunity to rethink a lot of things. And while it's messy in the middle, ultimately we come out with publisher is the source of truth, more transparency, better privacy, and more tools to actually do both what advertisers and publishers want. Yeah, it's the end of a basketball game if you're losing by like a bunch of points and like it gets a little chaotic. Hey, why not? <laughs> oh, it's so brutal. The hackathons in the last 10 seconds of an NBA game are just brutal. One of the big trends I think we're seeing in publishing, Troy Young had mentioned this in his newsletter today, was from CPM to GMV. And I believe that the basis of that pithy little statement. Publishers used to just show ads, to, but now they can actually drive sales. And it's better when you're a cost of goods sold than when you're a marketing expense. Yeah, look, I think that it's hard, but it also higher risk, higher reward. If you look at a publisher, like we represent Food 52, amazing brand. Now, they always created amazing content, but now they're moving from content to commerce. What does that mean? That means that they're not just selling other kitchen products, they now own their own. And in fact, they've had so much success. You may have seen they recently had another big either VC or private equity dump of dollars to buy some more brands. They're buying older brands, renewing them, yeah. and then actually driving their own commerce to, to the Food 52 store. But when you say brands, not like publishing brands, like making saute skillets and stuff. Yeah. They, they bought like this amazing Dutch cookware right. brand that had lost a lot of value. And because they have the premium content, the kitchen influencers and the audience, they're going to be able to drive revenue through their own products. And by the way, that has its own funnel, right? Meaning it's let me get someone engaged through a piece of content. Let me get them to understand why this is something they should be interested in and then be able to show them without leaving the ecosystem of Food 52 where they can connect with these products and then drive them into checkout. And with first party data being available, companies like ours can actually help identify the cohorts and audiences that should be targeted yeah. for certain products. Yeah, and goods. I think one of the most exciting things happening right now in publishing is that there's such a diversity of models now where it's not like the monolithic. It used to just be like, what's well, going to be ads or a few things it would be just subs. There's a whole variety of different levers now and you can build your own revenue stack that matches whatever the yeah, publication look, is about. Yeah. Look, that's again, that's what excites me every day is I don't come in and do the same thing every day, right? Like what, what fandom needs is very different from what Food 52 right. needs, right? But I want to be able to have the products and services and teams that can service both yeah. of those. And and that's not true of all of our brethren out there. A lot of them focus in, in one particular area, so they do X really well or they do Y really well. Ours is maybe harder, which is we need to do a lot of things well because someone has a commerce business that has direct 
consumer brands that they're selling on platform. Others are big affiliate revenue, where we need to understand what's happening once they leave our publisher's ecosystem so that we can have attribution within the digital ecosystem. We represent a publisher that does giant business in Best Buy and Walmart. Well, we need to know how is that revenue attributed back to our publisher so that on the back end, we can tie who was that and how much was the checkout, even though it doesn't happen within our publisher's ecosystem. So these are all incredibly important processes that happen with data at the center, but they're very different in, in how they're applied. So, final thing, it's something that's been on top of mind for me is the need to have effective advertising. I think sometimes we, we miss out on that. Publishers are really focused on direct reader revenue. Any one of us who goes around, we run into paywalls nonstop. And I think recurring revenue is an incredibly powerful part of a publishing model. I mean, it's not like a <laughs> breakthrough thought, but at the end of the day, the idea that credible or even just quality information should be a luxury good is a little worrying. And if, if the current state of advertising cannot support freely available inf information and entertainment, then I'm a little worried in the future when we start upending this model in a way that's, that could possibly make the advertising even less effective, right? Uh, I hope this doesn't seem like hyperbole, but I, I believe that the future of our democracy actually rides on the ability for journalism yeah. to be able to have a model that succeeds. And that won't always be with a paywall, right? When we know there's a paywall, it certainly filters out a certain segment of the population that either can't pay or won't pay. And so we've had ad-supported journalism for a very long time in this country. Which, which by the way, at a best case scenario is 90% of your audience. Of your audience, not of the population, of your audience. 90% are not going to pay you a cent. So that's very real. And by the way, we don't work in like the high echelons of academia, <laughs> but I read about it and this is talked about quite a yeah. bit. Like truly, like at the Neiman Center, like they're talking about how do we ensure that there is a model that allows independent publishers to survive? Consolidation is real. Right? All of the things that are taking place in publishing, we're witnessing right now. And television had a big renaissance when there was a cable model that took subscription dollars and ad-supported dollars, and it was an incredible renaissance for television-filmed content. There's no reason why that can't take place in digital journalism today. It's harder. And so, we look at what are the models that can survive on both the subscription and ad-supported side. Obviously, we're working with publishers on the ad side, but I think your point is well taken. We don't know what the answer is, and it is an incredibly um, tenuous time. So I think that the more that can be done to support those ad models, the better. I think that a lot of damage has been done with bad consumer experience and bad consumer messaging, which has really hurt this world in some ways. And there are very entrenched lobbies. If you look at who the top lobbyists at Washington are, you'll see where the dollars really lie. And so we're just going to we're going to keep at it because I do think it's incredibly important. It's not just about being able to get your lifestyle content or finding about about the latest game. There's actually real news that yeah. is important to to get out to the population at this time and we can't underestimate the importance of that as well. Yeah. They're both important, I think, you know, having access to just quality content of all kinds. And so I just think that people have retreated to paywalls and walked away and not almost walked away from advertising when it, it plays in a, a really a role 
not just in supporting journalism, but in the economy. It's how we discover new products, I think. <laughs> well, but look at the, if you have to... Which is how we continue capitalism, which is... The... But if you have limited resources and 79% of non-search revenue, yeah. ad revenue, is going to three companies... At a certain point, you've got to take that, yeah. you know, and, and you've got to, and you're a publisher and you have to divvy up resources. It's not always easy to stare down. How am I going to compete there? So I think that it, it wakes me up every morning. I'll tell you, it gets me out of bed to say, how am I going to either do the right partnership, sit on the right committee where we're talking about what the future of privacy and addressable looks like. All of these things have, have real world meaning. Sometimes ad tech can feel rather insular and it's tech based and it can be complex, but ultimately there are some very real outcomes that, that we need to see take place. And for 20 years, I woke up every day because I was trying to make an indie film and motivate a team to go and, and, and lead the charge on the creative side. I am just as excited to wake up every morning and motivate a team to look at how do we help publishers move from where they are today to a world where they can monetize better. And there's tons of challenges, but there's tons of opportunities too. Thank you so much, Jake. Brian, it's really been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.